with Christ crucified and risen. I ask, Lord, that this would be a time of growth and drawing close to you in their life. And it's through Christ that we pray. Amen. Years ago, when I served as pastor and church receptionist, a young neighbor boy walked into my office one fall day, and I was putting together a slideshow. I was the secretary as well, and uh, it was a slideshow for Thanksgiving Eve. And uh, I was arranging these slides, and, and this, this picture that came up as this little boy from off the street came in was a picture of a baptism. And he was quite intrigued with that picture. He had never seen a baptism. He had never even heard the word. He had absolutely no categories to understand what baptism was. And I thought, well, and I, as I did on a number of occasions, I took the opportunity to share the gospel with him, and I explained from this picture. I said, this is a picture of a baptism. And we submerge a person in water as a picture of dying with Christ. And then they rise up out of the water as a picture of believers' new life in Christ. And I doubt he understood most of what I had to say. But the one thing he latched on to was this identification with Jesus' death. And he looked at me with huge eyes and consternation in his voice and said, did you all kill him? And I, I thought of saying, no, he was already dead. He already died with Christ, but I didn't think that was going to be helpful. <laughs> so I, we worked it out and brought him out of the trial. But baptism is indeed an odd ritual, isn't it? It's not a practice that makes a lot of sense to non-Christians, to those who have not understood its meaning. Before we purchased our baptistry, I once went to a hotel in the area, and I went to the manager and asked if he would permit our church to perform baptisms in their swimming pool. He got a look of shock on his face, and he was so petrified. You would have thought I just told him I was a vampire. He literally said nothing, and from the counter took a full step backwards and stood there in shocked awe, not knowing what to say. I don't know that he ever did speak. I just dismissed myself and walked away. Now, there are places in this country that it's part of the culture. They understand baptism. They understand immersion a little bit better than around here. And around here, certainly, there's much understanding if you talk about an infant being baptized. But what matters to the health and the spiritual prosperity of Eden Baptist Church is that we know what baptism is, that we know what it means that we know why we practice it in the way that we do. As we return to our series on the local church today, we turn our consideration to this initiatory rite of baptism. And this was the topic scheduled for today, but we just allowed it to uh, come together and mesh together with those who are coming to baptism today to bring the two together, but as we talk about the life of the church, what is the local church, and how does the Word of God reveal that we are to function together, we really need to consider baptism. And we started the series by considering the formation of Christ's church by God's Word and Spirit. The risen Christ forms the church as individuals place their trust in the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. 
as they trust that message, the Spirit of God comes upon that Word and gives new life to those who respond in faith. And so the Spirit washes and regenerates our dead souls. He doesn't perfect us yet at this point, but He cleanses us from the guilt of sin forever. And so in that relationship of Word and Spirit, the church is formed. We understand that to be the nature of the church, of those who have so responded and come to trust in Christ the Savior. And secondly, we looked at the idea that as a living body, as the new temple in which God dwells by His Spirit, the local church is nurtured in spiritual growth by feeding on the truth of the Scriptures. We take in regularly and consistently the Word of God, feeding upon it and being transformed by it. So formed by God's Word and Spirit, we become then people of the book. People who hear the written words of God, the truth of God conveyed there, and are transformed and changed by it. Having established these two concepts of the place of the Word in our lives as the body of Christ, we come now to this initiatory rite of baptism. Baptism, we know and believe as a church, first of all, is the means that our Lord chose for us to identify as His followers. All Bible-believing people agree on that point. It is the means that our Lord chose for us to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. The Word and Spirit has combined within my soul, has washed me clean of the guilt of sin, and I have come now to trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. This rite, baptism, indicates that, identifies us with that message. Now we know well the passage in Matthew 28, but let's lay again our eyes on this passage. And for some, this may not be as familiar Just for a few moments, let me look at Matthew chapter 28, in a sense by way yet almost of introduction, but just to establish this point, this is the means that our Lord chose to identify as His followers. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has been crucified in Jerusalem, He has risen from the dead, He is appearing to His followers throughout Israel, and now meets with them in what was very likely a remote, isolated place because it was on a mountaintop and people didn't live there as they might today because it's a really nice spot to live. It was a very inconvenient place to live for them. And so he meets them on a mountain in Galilee, a long ways from the city of Jerusalem and the trials of recent days, and he gets with his disciples and he says this, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So the risen Christ starts with an assertion of His authority. This authority extends into all of heaven. It extends into all of the universe. It extends, of course, then also throughout the earth. 
And he concludes then with a promise of his abiding presence with the disciples. Their mission and ours is described in verses 19 in the first part of verse 20. It is first of all to make disciples. That is to proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen throughout the world. And then, some will respond to that message. With those individuals, you are to baptize them, Jesus instructs his followers. Baptize means to immerse or to dunk. Here the meaning is to submerge the new believer underwater. And of course, then they are to continue teaching all that Christ has observed, as we noted that in our last sermon in the series. But the word to baptize means to submerge. So my little friend was very concerned that we were dunking somebody underwater and not letting them come out again. He missed the rising part, but he got something right. To submerge in water is a picture of death. We submit to an environment in which we cannot live. And so we are buried with Christ in baptism. Now, Christians who sprinkle or pour water on, initiate, on initiates often cite an obscure text in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible to defend that practice. And with all respect, we just don't agree. But the, this text in Leviticus is used to say that there's to be two sacrificial birds. You're to kill them both and in the blood of one bird, you are to dip in the other bird and then sacrifice them. There's reasons for this that we have no time to chase now. But in that obscure translation into the Greek language from the Hebrew text, there are those who say, see, baptize doesn't always mean immerse. And that is a, a, an argument that is, is given. And indeed, biblically speaking, there really aren't many others, if any. But I would say, just briefly in response, in the Leviticus passage, the blood isn't sprinkled on top of the other bird. It's not poured out on top of the other bird. The other bird is applied to the blood. It is dipped down, or you could use the word dunked in. Now, obviously, there's not enough blood there to perfectly submerge the bird. Secondly, well, let me finish that thought. It's not submerging the bird, but it is being applied to the liquid. And secondly, why would you form a position on one obscure reference from a translation when the overwhelming use of the word in the ancient world meant to dunk in water? You have to go searching hard hard and long to find this one reference where it doesn't mean absolutely submerged, but again, it means to dip in, and the overwhelming use, time after time after time in the Greek language, baptize means submerge. And when we die, our hair doesn't die. Our whole body is submitted to death. And thirdly, every example of baptism in the New Testament provides an indication that it, wherever there is an indication of the mode of baptism, it always points to immersion. Jesus went down into the Jordan River. 
the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 went down into the water with Philip. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, we know that the temple was surrounded by mikvoth, by these tubs of water in which the Jews submerged themselves. They didn't dip their hand in and sprinkle it on their head. They got down into the water and bent down and were completely submerged. Any time that we have any indication of the use of the word baptize in the New Testament, it always means to completely dunk in water. And even those who sprinkle and pour rather than submerge admit that this was the practice in the early days of the church. And so I would say that anyone who argues that the word baptize does not mean submerge in water is simply choosing to defend a tradition rather than listening carefully to what Christ said. We can be sure in the context of that day where submersion baptism was happening all over the place in Israel, everywhere, in people's homes. You can read about this. It's, it's, it's very clear that in that context, when Jesus said to those 11 disciples, when someone trusts me as Savior, submerge them in water, that's how they heard it. There is no other way that they could have. So our practice of immersing believers is active obedience to Christ. And when you talk to a hotel manager, that can sometimes get really mixed up in translation. I don't know that the man had any categories for baptized, but if he did, he certainly didn't have submersion in his categories. But there's a reason we do this. It's Christ's command and we know in the symbolism of it as well that we'll not emphasize that here today, there's a significance to submersion. Immersion in water is the means that our Lord chose for us to identify publicly as His followers. But what is the point? What is the point? One of the most theologically developed passages that reveals the significance of baptism is found in Colossians 2. And I encourage you to turn there to note this passage, Colossians chapter 2, and we'll consider it for a few moments here. In Matthew 28, we see that baptism is the means our Lord chose for us to identify as His followers. And secondly, here in Colossians 2, baptism is the sign of our regeneration in union with Christ. And that theme will flow throughout this passage, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 11. In Him, and there's so much we could consider here about Christ, but that's the idea that in Him, united with Christ, verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Circumcision. Verse 11. That points us back in the text of Scripture to the Old Covenant and to the stipulations that were there. Circumcision in which the foreskin of male infants was ceremonially cut was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and was continued under the Mosaic Covenant. This ritual identified a child with the people of God, the people that God had covenanted to save. Now there's a number of covenants in the Old Testament. We can get confused by them a little bit, but just think in terms of covenant as God's plan to save His people. And One of the signs of the Abrahamic, indeed under the Mosaic Covenant, one of the signs that you were identified with that covenant people was circumcision. And thereby... Through that circumcision, all of the children that would be born to that male child. But we know, if you've read the Old Testament, you also know that circumcision is not only physical, but there are references to figurative circumcision. That what God is really pointing to ultimately is not simply a cutting of the actual flesh, but is this sense of being identified with God. And that what must happen is not simply physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. And the prophet spoke often of that because many people who received physical circumcision never honored God at all. They were identified as part of the covenant people, but they were not changed in their heart. They were not regenerated by God's Spirit. So under the Old Covenant, an Israelite could be physically circumcised and walk away from God, and many, many did. So the prophets will say over and over again, you must be circumcised in heart, trusting in Yahweh as your Lord and Savior. Now Paul draws on this important theme here, obviously, in verse 11. We ask the question, I ask you, as you look at verse 11, is he talking about physical circumcision or is he talking about spiritual circumcision here? In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. A circumcision made without hands can only be a spiritual circumcision. It is a putting off of the body of the flesh, which is language very familiar in the writings of Paul that speaks about our life in sin. You have set that life aside. doesn't mean you don't sin anymore, that you're perfect, but the power of sin has been broken, as we've just been singing. That's the idea here. The circumcision of Christ speaks of the regeneration through trust in the gospel. Jesus doesn't circumcise us physically, clearly. It's a spiritual concept through the circumcision that is connected to the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And Paul clarifies in verse 12, having been, here's what I mean, you've been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So spiritual circumcision is realized in our burial and resurrection with Christ in baptism. Does this mean that baptism saves us? That by going down into the water, by performing that act, God chooses to save us? 
You may read it's the, the Latin phrase that is often used here, ex opere operato. That, the idea in the, with that discussion is, does the water itself save us? Is it, in a sense, a saving act? Well, this is a circumcision made without hands. And so it speaks of a transformation of the heart, not a ritual performance. There is no person on earth who could be saved by going down into water or by being sprinkled on the head. It is impossible to save someone from the guilt of sin by that means. The Bible repeatedly stresses that we cannot be saved by any ritual performance. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of work so that no one can boast. But faith alone, by faith alone, we can be identified with the death of Christ for our sins and with His resurrection for our deliverance from death. And so I think baptism here, as it speaks of it, is not merely water baptism. It's nothing less than that, but it's not merely water baptism, but rather the entire complex of saving events in which we trust Christ as Savior and stand in the waters of baptism to identify with Him and to say, I've been born again. I've been washed clean of sin through faith in the message of what Jesus did in my behalf. Again, to clarify, he continues, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does uncircumcision mean here? Spiritually. In your lostness, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. It's while we were sinners, not after we've performed ritual deeds, but in our sin that He saves us. It's in our sin that He rescues us and makes us alive. It's when we are dead that He gives us life. By the combination of what? I say by word and spirit. By hearing the message and the Spirit of God regenerates our life. Not by going into a baptismal service and earning God's favor by something we've done. He does it, verse 14, this way, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We say, well, how did he do that? Did he just kind of just say, well, you know, your sins don't really matter. It's okay. We'll, we'll live with it. Not at all. That would be a lack of justice. What he did was he took all of the sins that we have committed and if you could think of the list of your own sins, it'd have to be a scroll or a book, wouldn't it? He took them all. And he said, I'll take care of that. I'm not going to just look the other way. I'm going to really, truly deal with that. And those sins, as it were, in a record, were nailed to his cross and he said, here's how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to die for you. And I'm going to pay the eternal cost of every last one of them. Nailing it to his cross. 
against His law. We lie and steal and cheat and hate and gossip and lust and exalt ourselves over others. Against God's law, we do not love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Against His law, we do not love Him with all of our hearts, but rather our hearts are idle factories filled with all kinds of inferior loves that we prioritize over loyalty to the one true and living God. And we say, I'll worship my own gods, my own way, and I'll write my own script with my own laws. And all of that is deep sinfulness and depravity. But He takes all of our crimes, all of them, nails them to the cross, and dies to pay their eternal penalty. Did it work? Did he accomplish what he set out to do? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it or in him, depending on the text, by the cross, but it's in what Jesus did on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. The demonic powers that stood against us first in opposition through temptation, but also in mocking And saying, do you know what that guy has done? Do you know how she has sinned against you, God? He's triumphed over all of it. He's put to silence the accusations against His people by paying the full penalty of their sin. And He has triumphed. Like a conquering general, Jesus, as it were, marched the defeated powers of darkness as His spoils of war In triumphant procession, he said, of we who are sinners and have trusted in Christ, these are my conquest. These are my children. Triumphing over the powers of hell, we can now sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. He is the victor. He is the conqueror. And here is the key that flows through all of this passage. I, through faith, am united to him. I've been united in His death, united in His resurrection. To sin I have died in Christ, and to the new life I have received life in Him. I don't know how to read this passage faithfully any other way than to say that from top to bottom it is about the saving, regenerating power of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. These verses speak of our lost condition and our new life in Christ. The people who are in view here are whom? They are those who have received a circumcision not made with hands. They have been buried with Jesus in baptism. They have been forgiven as their crimes against God have been paid in full. But many who practice the baptism of infants find something very other in this passage. And these are matters of not throwing stones and seeking to harm, but simply of discussion in light of Scripture, because it's not our view that matters. It's what God's Word says, and we're striving to come to understand it and put it together. So if you're not used to this kind of conversation in church, be at ease. We respect those of you who hold to infant baptism and have been baptized as infants, but we should have a discussion. 
So from verses 11 to 12, the argument is for those who go to this passage and see infant baptism here, that circumcision has been replaced by baptism. That's the point of the text in their view. And since circumcision was practiced with children under the old covenant, then baptism must be applied to children under the new covenant. Do you see a problem with that in verses 11 and 12? This passage does not compare physical circumcision with baptism. It compares baptism with the circumcision not made with hands. You see the issue. It's not replacing circumcision with baptism because it's not talking about physical circumcision. It compares baptism with the circumcision made without hands, which is the circumcision of Christ, the one made without hands, no knives, a work Christ does. What Paul is using here is he talks about a circumcision without hands. He is definitely thinking back in the Old Testament context. But what he is using is New Covenant language to say that those who are baptized are those who have new hearts. And the Old Testament prophets anticipated this day coming when all under this new relationship with God through Christ would have new hearts. By no stretch of the imagination is he teaching that Old Covenant circumcision is replaced by New Covenant baptism. It's just not here. And I think to make such a claim is to force this text to serve the interpreter's agenda. Well, let's take just a few more moments and say, what's that agenda? What is it that's driving them to read? I mean, as I look at this, 11 and 12, it seems pretty clear this isn't physical circumcision. So what is the agenda that is driving that kind of an interpretation? It's not the text. It's something other. Now, we know why some people believe that infant baptism saves. That makes perfect sense. They believe that salvation is by works. And so here's a work. You baptize the child. The child's good with God. It's all over. I understand that's logical. It's flat wrong, and it breaks many passages of Scripture, but, it, but it's logical. But why do some Bible-believing, born-again Christians insist that we baptize infants? The answer is not because they find precedent for infant baptism in the text of the New Testament. They admit they do not. There is no such evidence. And it's not because a passage such as this one demands infant baptism. It simply does not. They baptize infants for one fundamental reason, and that is that they insist that a single covenant of grace overarches all covenants, draws them all together to such a profound degree that the inclusion of children under the old covenant in circumcision must find parallel under the new covenant and it's in baptism. Because the new, the new covenant has nothing to do with physical circumcision any longer. By binding the two together this way, there must be a replacement of circumcision under the Old Covenant in the New Covenant and its physical baptism. 
Now, I, we're not going to take a long time. And right here, some of you are going to just get right off the train. But I'm going to take a few minutes. One of our tasks as a church is to defend the truth of God's Word. So I hope you don't check out. But this will demand some biblical background and knowledge to just filter this. But I, let me just say it very quickly. A few ideas. What this does by saying that all of the covenants are really just a reflection of the one covenant of grace, they fail to adequately recognize the progressive and developing nature of the biblical covenants. That development points to Jesus as the last Adam, the Adamic covenant. As the true seed of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. As David's greater son, the Davidic covenant. As the mediator of the new covenant, replacing the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant in their way of seeing things is not really new. It's simply a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the agenda that leads to reading a text like this in this way. And the second error, I think, is that they see the Abrahamic covenant as if it were the new covenant. But to do this, they have to read the new covenant back into the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12. And reading that back in, what they do is they strip the Abrahamic covenant of certain of its aspects keeping only the spiritual aspects, but ignoring the national aspects, the typological aspects, that is that it's pointing somewhere else and greater. So everything in the Abrahamic covenant that does not fit the theological grid is kind of just discarded, such as the identity of Abraham's offspring and the promises of the land of Israel. These are all set aside, because it doesn't fit the system. And in the end, they failed to appreciate what Stephen Wellham calls the historical progression along a redemptive historical storyline. There's just not a sense of how the Bible keeps progressing through the covenants and how Christ is the fulfillment of all and the new covenant is really new. And that's the third point, is that they miss the newness of this covenant. It is very true that people could be included under the Old Covenant who were never regenerated. That is true. No one argues. But by forcing the Abrahamic Covenant to look just like the New Covenant and forcing the New Covenant to not fulfill but to merely mirror the Abrahamic Covenant, they insist that people can be included in the New Covenant who were never saved. Now they're Maybe some of you just woke up because that we have considered at some length and it's not challenging. The conclusion is that infants who are baptized and never come to Christ are included in the covenant that God has worked through Christ to save His people. They're part of it. Just like in the Old Testament, they may not ever be regenerated, so now we have people baptized who may never be regenerated, but they are part of the covenant community of the church. This is not a big deal, many people say. Really? Are we going to really get into this like this? And we're going to say this matters? I mean, come on. 
A child, an infant is just being baptized, just being sprinkled with water. It's just a way of the parents kind of saying we're dedicated to, to raising this child. And, and, it, and it says that they do have a place in the church. It's just kind of a warm, it doesn't really mean much. You don't have to worry so much about it. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why it does cause worry. The first harm that it does in such churches, and we're in a series on the life of the church, the first thing that it does in those churches, no matter how staunchly evangelical a church is, there just plain will be people who think that saves. And you can see it as you go to weddings and funerals, particularly funerals. You can be in a gospel-preaching, infant-baptizing church. These people are as saved as anybody in this church has ever thought about being saved. But when it comes to the liturgy, there's a confusion about the place of baptism in that discussion, if this person has gone to meet the Lord or not. You can't get around that. And secondly, a harm that is done is when a, local, when a local church sprinkles infants, it actively and willingly includes in its membership individuals who are unregenerate, some of whom will never be converted by word and spirit. And I'm not making this up. I've read this in text from infant baptizing theologians who have said this is the deal. We have in our churches unregenerate people because that's how they believe the nature of the church. That's what they believe the nature of the church is. You see the connection. Just as Old Testament circumcised individuals who never came to know the Lord, so we must have the same thing in the church. Infants who are baptized who never come to know the Lord, but they are part of the covenant people. Those who identify with such churches, they may not understand it, it may not seem like a big deal, but what they're doing is they're identifying with a mixed company of people. They're saying, my church is a mixture of believers and unbelievers. I don't think that's a small decision. You're talking about the nature of the church and how to walk in fellowship. The third harm that I think is done is that infants are baptized without exercising faith. And that is a problem when we come to New Testament texts. In the New Testament, faith, belief, and baptism always go together. Always. So much so that many in history of infant baptizing churches and theologians have really struggled with this idea. Some have said the baby does have faith. And they've insisted on this and written at great length on this. The baby does have faith in the gospel. They've never been able to explain how that's possible. But they say it's got to be because that's what the New Testament demands. All who are baptized exercise faith, so the baby must have faith. Others say no way. That, that, that's not possible, and so we have to conclude that some people can be baptized without exercising faith, even though the New Testament shows not one example of that. 
And others would say, here's the answer, the faith that's exercised is not the babies, it's the parents. And so the parents' faith, by proxy, the child is saved through faith and baptism. Faith first, then baptism, but it's the parents' faith. Now, in all of these efforts, there is not any of this that is tied directly to developing New Testament texts and understanding the New Covenant in its context through the progress of history. There is simply an insistence that one covenant binds all together so equally that whatever happened under the Old Covenant has to be happening under the New. And since unbelievers were part of the Old Covenant community, they have to be part of the New Covenant community. What I think this passage so clearly indicates to us is that the New Covenant is really new. And you either have baptism without the Spirit or the Spirit is received without faith in infant baptizing constructs. You either have baptism without the Spirit or you have the Spirit received without faith. Both of those are a major problem when it comes to New Testament texts. In the Reformation era, as much of this was getting settled and becoming to di- and certainly dividing people, Erasmus, who was no evangelical, he wasn't probably a very good Roman Catholic either, but Erasmus, a, a reformer, at that time suggested the practice of confirmation. This will help us out with these infants that are not exercising faith, and we got a little bit of a problem with parents exercising faith for children, and we have a little bit of a problem of baptism not including belief and the Spirit, but we can fix it all by setting a further date for the child to confirm that faith. It's really amazing when he did that, he got attacked from every side because the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers said, you can't do that. That's just a second baptism. But he was driven by the New Testament text. No hero of ours, but he was driven by the New Testament text to say, faith always accompanies baptism. The Spirit Washing the soul always happens in the context of baptism. Now, we realize that it doesn't always because there are people who are not regenerate who come into the waters of baptism. But we work pretty hard as a church to make sure that doesn't happen. And I can tell you, as a pastor, there are people who have presented themselves for baptism that we have said, you're not ready. One, I can think of because the young man said he wanted to see what it felt like. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not yet ready. Another wanted a certain kind of donuts afterwards, and he had his donuts picked out, and that's why he wanted to be baptized. There were others who had stories of spiritual experiences but had no knowledge of what Jesus' death and resurrection meant to them. 
And there are some who came to that place and by going through that process came to know Christ the Savior and were ready to be baptized. So we can't know that everyone is saved who comes into the waters of baptism, but we can know belief and baptism have gone together, and by as much as we can determine, the Spirit of God is combined with the Word of God to regenerate these people who stand here now, having received the circumcision of Christ, being buried with Him and rising with Him in baptism. Well, baptism is an odd ritual as far as our world is concerned. And it's an ordinance of no small dispute. And we will admit that. And obviously admit we don't have it all figured out and don't know everything. But for us, this church, in this place, at this time, it is a thing of beauty. Because it bears witness to the transforming power of the risen Christ who inaugurates the new covenant with His blood who forgives His people of their sins and gives them new life. This is a picture of that new life. With all of our warts and failings and all the progress we need to make, God has done His work. He's continuing His work. And those who stand here in the waters of baptism identify with that work and with this church where God is forming together a people by word and spirit. So we have five candidates who will come now and uh, offer their confession as believers and identify with Christ in baptism. Like many of like many of you, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church nearly every Sunday and also attended a Christian school. When I was very young, I remember one thing that really stood out to me. If I was not a Christian, I would go to hell. This scared me, so I asked my parents to help me become a Christian. They told me that if I believe in God and that he sent his son to die for my sins, and if I repented of my sins and asked for forgiveness, and also trusted in Christ's sacrifice for me on the cross, that I would be a Christian. So I prayed for forgiveness, but nothing really changed. I didn't stop living in my sin, and I didn't care. It wasn't about until age 12 that I truly realized my need for a Savior. I realized I had to put my full trust and belief in Christ, in that Christ died for me. That day I asked God to forgive me for all my sins, repented of my sin, and put my full trust in God. Now I believe it's important to do everything God tells me. That's why I want to be baptized. Matthew 28, 18 through 19 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe baptism is going to help me become a Christian in any way but I do believe it's what God calls Christians to do.
Um, hi, I'm David Rasmussen. I don't, don't really know if I'm going to need this after 13 years in the Army, but <laughs> if I see people start to go like this, then I'll just put it down and use my Army voice. <laughs> years ago, uh, during what I consider my previous life, I was existing at the lowest possible point, about as low as any human being could possibly reach. I was walking around life almost like an automaton, filled with a mix of negative, emotion, negative emotions from anger to depression. I had come to this low point in my life as a result of the sinful way in which I had spent living it. I had always felt an emptiness within myself that I had tried to fill with material and baseless things. I thought if I had enough nice clothes or a sporty car and jewelry and quite honestly, meaning relationship, meaningless relationships with women that it would somehow fill the emptiness that I felt inside myself. I also spent a lot of time at the gym thinking again that if I could only make myself beautiful enough and make others think of me as beautiful, it would help me feel like a better and more fulfilled person as if somehow these were the things that were defining my life. However, Back then, little did I realize the trap of these things. Every time I saw someone with a nicer car or better clothes or shinier jewelry, bigger muscles, or a more beautiful woman on his arm, I would become jealous and angry, wondering why this person, who was so obviously inferior to me, as I felt at the time, deserved to have better things than I had. This, of course, led to an endless downward spiral of even more obsessiveness, covetous envy, and ever-increasing anger at others as I continued to live a life of materialism. All the while, of course, that emptiness within myself was never filling, and my behaviors and resulting attitudes were destroying almost everything around me, from my relationships with friends in the military to my relationship with my future wife, my first job as a civilian, and mostly my personal opinion of myself and where my life was headed. Finally, after reaching a point so low that I could not crawl out of it, I collapsed under the weight of my own strained life. Friends and family urged me to seek help, and it was on a following Sunday almost a year and a half ago that I drifted into here at Eden Baptist Church. I don't know exactly what it was that led me finally to seek a relationship with God. I'd always believed he'd existed. However, I had never prayed or worshipped and <laughs> actually had sometimes even blasphemed and cursed him for not providing me with what I thought I deserved in life. Now, I don't remember what Dan Miller was preaching on that particular Sunday, the first day I sat in the back. But I do remember the result, even now, a year and a half later, of how profoundly his words had struck me. It was as if he had taken my very life experience and emotions and was laying them out before everybody and preaching about them. And I wondered how could that be? I mean, I'd never been to the church before, and certainly Dan Miller couldn't, you know, know to, to, <laughs> to coin a phrase in the middle of the church, he couldn't know me from Adam. <laughs> and so I took that as a sign that maybe what he was speaking on 
was affecting me at some more personal level about the way that I'd been living my life. So I came back the next Sunday and the Sunday following, and pretty much every Sunday I've tried to be here since and have had almost the same epiphany-like experience every time. Then I began reading and actually studying the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ, spending a lot of time with Paul Perdue, who acted as my guide in this new journey and was patient enough to put up with all my wild inquiries and, as they probably seemed at the time, the doubting questions of an atheist. I came to realize the truth of the way I had been living my life. I had been seeking to fill an emptiness within myself with materialism and sin, but the truth is my sinful life had only completed had only continued to eat away at me, making me less of a person than I had been to start off with. One of the messages that I actually do remember from back in those early days, well, I consider my early days of being here at Eden Baptist, is that we cannot fix ourselves from anything that we do personally or from the inside, is that we need help to fix ourselves from the outside. And I think that message alone was one of the most influential that I had ever heard, leading me to realize how wrong I had been to live my life only to fulfill my own glory, even turning directly away from God in doing so. And ever since, I have continued to read and study the gospel and have been trying to lead my life by the message of God's word and have never been more at peace with myself or happy with my life since. And although I know that I have a long way to go, and I know I'll never fully live up to God's complete sinlessness uh, and standard of perfection, I know that I am living a much better life now along a path with God, and that my sin has been forgiven in the act of Jesus Christ on the cross. Today's baptism to me symbolizes my spiritual and emotional rebirth symbolically washing away my past sin and ushering in a tide of repentance of my past life. And as I look forward to joining the family here at Eden Baptist Church as a way of enabling and furthering my spiritual development. I'm Kevin Mahoney. Uh, That's a pretty tough act to follow. Uh, uh, I grew up in what I considered a Christian home, and excuse me for a second. Um, I always considered myself to be a believer, um, but unfortunately, when I was younger, uh, basically all that meant to me was I had to do more good things than I did bad. Uh, Make sure that the scale was always tipped this way, Um, and make sure I didn't swear in front of my parents. Uh, It wasn't until I became an adult that I started to dive deeper into God's Word and really understand the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, That although I have sinned against a holy God and uh, only deserve death, God sent Jesus to take my punishment, to die on the cross in my place, offering full forgiveness through repentance and sin, and belief in Christ's sacrifice as my only hope for eternal life. Uh, There are no works I could ever do that would be good enough to earn his grace. As Romans 4, 5 says, uh, But to the one who does not work but believes in him, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. I now fully accept, uh, trust and accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. 
Over the past five to six years, I have really grown in my faith alongside my wife, um, who has really helped me in this walk. I fully acknowledge that uh, the act of baptism itself does not save me, um, but I think my wife described it best. Um, she described our marriage like a baptism, that uh, even though I had proposed to her, and at that point already basically made my um, announcement that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, I still stood before God in his church and said my vows. So today I pursue baptism to publicly declare my faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for my sins and ultimately uh, be married to his bride, the church. I wish to be a member of Eden Baptist Church to join in fellowship with God's people to further declare my commitment to not only him but his followers and to be, a held, to be held accountable for my commitment. Thank you. Um, my name is Ryan B, and uh, I grew up in a Christian family, so I heard the gospel many times, but as a child, I couldn't trust in something that I couldn't understand as a five-year-old. Um, it wasn't until I was 10 that I put my faith in Christ, understanding that because my sin, without his perfect sacrifice on the cross, I deserved an eternity in hell. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, but it is a gift of God. Not a, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And in accordance to the Bible and to further my walk with God today, I have decided to be baptized. Hello, everyone. I am Aaron Hayde. Um, as a lot of you know, I uh, went to this church through my grade school years with my family. Uh, I grew up going to church and learning about God through the Sunday school services and Wednesday night youth group. Um, shortly after my sister passed away in 2003, my family decided to switch out of churches, and uh, I pretty much then made the decision that I was going to skip out on church altogether. Um, I had no desire to learn about God and zero motivation to obey what I knew he wanted from me. Uh, I charged straight to the world with only my desires as a guide. <clears throat> Throughout high school and leading up to my college years, my life was basically one part of the next with school sprinkled somewhere in the middle. Um, alcohol and drugs were a regular weekend activity. Lying became a pretty normal thing for me. And the God that created me became a God that I would come back. The God that created me became a God that I would come back to when I was older and had to add my fun. Uh, fast forward to start of last year. Um, I'd had a very heavy heart of conviction. And uh, that feeling really just grew heavier and heavier. Um, God started moving her. God started moving around different pieces of my life, and um, I'd felt so comfortable the way I'd been living, and all of a sudden those things really kind of just dropped out. And I started questioning, you know, where's my life going? And Ultimately, what is this leading to? Um, combine that with uh, many different people in this corner and scattered around who were giving me timely talks and always encouraging me throughout the way. Um, I uh, wasn't very confident in my party life. <laughs> that feeling of uh, conviction wasn't going away, and I was questioning my. Um, and while I was questioning my sin, I hadn't separated myself from it at all. Um, and then one night, uh, I went to a bar with some of my good friends, and uh, God decided to send me a wake-up call. 
Uh, I was jumped by five guys and had an exciting ambulance ride to the emergency room. Um, I've always thought I was pretty much invincible, but after that night I realized uh, that wasn't really the case. <laughs> um, anyways, I think God used that night as kind of a speed boost to, uh, for me to wake up and realize the, the truths that I really needed to realize. Uh, a few months later, I started meeting with Pastor Miller, um, and on a weekly basis we met, and my eyes started to open to the fact that I was living a very sinful life, and the reason for my heavy heart was because I was missing a personal relationship with my Creator. Uh, I began to read God's Word on a daily basis and started praying and really felt God working in my heart. Um, I decided in order for me to live a life that honors God, I needed to abandon the things that I was doing. So I stopped drinking, doing drugs, listening to the sinful music, and going out to the bars. Uh, this decision was not easy at the time for me. Um, the temptation was there daring me for, to step back into the life that I had been living, but on the opposite side, I finally uh, felt God's presence really standing me there or encouraging me to stand firm in, in honoring him. Uh, one day while reading my Bible, I prayed out and asked God's forgiveness for all my past sins. Um, I was ashamed of them and knew that without Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, I would die and go to hell. I asked God to change my heart and mold me into the man he wants me to be. Uh, I thanked him for his incredible mercy when Jesus was hung on the cross for my sins, uh, making it possible for me to have an eternal life in heaven when I die. Uh, that day was the day I was truly saved. I stand up here now fully confident that I am saved by God's grace through Jesus' death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. Um, that brings us today. I had asked this, uh, Pastor Miller about baptism some time ago and brought up that I was baptized when I was five years old. Um, Pastor Miller went through what baptism was and what it means and how it pertains to living a Christian life. Um, God really put the topic on my heart and decided that when I was five years old, I, had, I wasn't being baptized in obedience to God's word. Um, I was doing it to make my parents happy and because, hey, at five years old, who doesn't want to swim in a pool, right? <laughs> um, so here I am standing before you guys today in obedience to God's word and as an identification that the old me has died and a new life with Christ is here. Um, along with being baptized today, I'm also becoming a member of the Eden Baptist Church um, I've been coming here for nine months and would like to be part of this church family. Um, I want the responsibility of fellowshipping with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as well and taking part in the different opportunities that are laid out to reach, laid out, to reach out as a church. Um, I want everyone to help me to be accountable, as Mrs. Pratt has done a wonderful job. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I hopefully can encourage other, other people here uh, when they are in need of encouragement. Uh, this is a great church, and I love how we're rooted in Scripture. Um, and uh, I pray that God would allow me to be a blessing to every one of you, as well as, um, or, and, oh, one mess up at the end, come on. I pray that God would allow me to be a blessing to everyone here, as you have all been to me. Uh, thank you for your time, prayers, and encouragement, and let's get dunked. As Aaron, as Aaron mentioned, each one here is identifying with Christ through baptism, but they're also identifying with our church. So they will be members of Eden Baptist Church. 
as of today. In light of that, it's a good time to remind ourselves of our commitment to each other as members. God's Word has laid out in the New Testament how we are to relate to each other as members of this church, and we sought to capture that teaching in our church covenant, and everyone who joins our church affirms that covenant. And so we're going to do that now. I'd invite you to stand, and if you are a member of our church, please read with those who join in on this covenant now for the first time. Having been led by divine grace to repent of our sin and to trust of salvation in the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and upon this profession, having been immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We pledge to regularly attend the assembly of this church to support its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, and to contribute willingly and faithfully to its spiritual and financial stability and its spread of the gospel to all nations. We pledge to walk together in a spirit of unity and love, to avoid all unwholesome and unedifying speech, to honor the leadership of the flock, and to exercise affectionate concern and spiritual watch care over one another. We pledge to faithfully admonish and encourage one another to live holy lives, to serve one another, to rejoice in one another's happiness, and to bear one another's burdens and sorrows with tender compassion. We pledge to be zealous for good works, to regularly read and meditate upon the scriptures, to pray for ourselves and one another, to persevere in wise living, not causing others to stumble, rejecting ungodliness and embracing holiness, and to seek the salvation of the lost through faithful proclamation of the gospel. We also pledge that if we leave this assembly, we will promptly unite with another church where we may carry out the spirit of this covenant. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Please remain standing and we'll sing as each one goes back. I have decided No turning back. 
turning back. You may be seated. Emily Miller, is it your belief that Jesus Christ is God's Son, the only name by which we must be saved? Yes. And Emily, have you placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes. Is it your desire to live for Him forever? Yes. Amen. Emily Miller, upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and in obedience to His command that all believers be baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in death, raised with Christ to new life. David makes it as entertaining as anybody ever has back there. <laughs> David Rasmussen, is it your belief that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, the only name by which we must be saved? Yes. Have you come, David, to place your personal faith in Christ as your Savior? I have. And is it your desire to live for Him all of your days? Yes, it is. David Rasmussen, Upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and in obedience to his command that all believers be baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with him in death, raised with him to new life. Kevin Mahoney, is it your belief that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, the only name by which we must be saved? It is. And have you placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? I have. Is it your desire to identify with Him here and to live for Him all of your days? Yes. And Kevin Mahoney, upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and in obedience with his command that all believers be baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in death, raised with him to new life.
And Ryan, we, we ask these questions, they've all heard them, but for you personally, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, the only name by which we must be saved? Yes, I do. And have you placed your personal faith in Christ as your Savior? Yes. Is it your desire to identify with Him here and to live for Him all of your days? Yes. And Ryan B., upon your profession of faith in Christ as your personal Savior, and in obedience with Christ's command that all believers be baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Him in death, raised with Him to new life. more expensive watches than I do. <laughs> Mine wouldn't be okay in here. <laughs> Aaron, it's great to hear your testimony, to walk with you through these past months. And is it your belief that Jesus Christ is God's only Son and the only name by which you must be saved? Yes, it is. Have you placed your personal faith in Christ as your Savior? Yes. And is it your desire to identify with him here and to live for him all of your days? Yes. And Aaron Hayde, upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and in obedience to Christ's command that all believers be baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in death. Raised with him to new life. Please stand with me and let's sing in response a prayer to our great God. Oh, great God of highest
Amen. We welcome each one of you who visit with us this morning. And I know some may be friends or relatives of those baptized. We're thankful you came, and we're so glad to have you here with us today. We meet at 6 o'clock this evening for our first quarter's members meeting. We'd encourage all of you, particularly if you're a member, to be here. And we'll hear tonight from Ryan's parents, Dallas and Ruth B., and we'll also hear from Kevin's wife, Alyssa. So we'll hear some new, some other member testimonies tonight, and we'd encourage you all to be back for that. And significant event this weekend, there's nothing we do as a church that's more important than prayer. And we have the chance to pray together either Friday night or Saturday morning. As we look at Scripture, we'll look together at God's Word, we'll think about it, and we'll respond in prayer. I'd encourage you to consider being part of that either Friday evening or Saturday morning. There's more about it in the bulletin. All those who are baptized are going to come right up here in the front. And after I close this in prayer, I'd encourage you, if you're able, before you have to leave, to just come and welcome them. Welcome them into our church family as members of Eden Baptist. We're so thankful, Father, for the gospel of Christ that has transformed our hearts through your grace. We rejoice in what you've done in Emily, in David, in Kevin, in Ryan, in Aaron's life. And thank you for the opportunity to witness a display of that transformation here through baptism. We pray for each of these and ask that they would grow as members in our church, that we would encourage them, they would encourage the body. And may your will and your purposes continue to bring fruit in their lives. We thank you for the gospel and for Christ. And may we go now rejoicing in that gospel. And may our prayer be as we've sung, that you would glorify yourself, that you would make yourself look glorious in all of our lives according to your purposes. It's in Christ we ask this. Amen.